Welcome to Where'd They Go, a podcast that is intended to aid in the grieving process after the loss of a child. Hi, I'm your host, Cheryl Laxanen, and in 2014, after the loss of my son Christopher at the age of 22, I started to receive strange, supernatural communications immediately upon his transition. I say transition because that is what I believe it is. It's just a step into a new type of existence without our earthly body. I thought I was going crazy, even contemplating that I had schizophrenia. So I immersed myself into books and self-help groups to explore what happens after death. By receiving communication from spirit and conducting my own research and exploration, I now wanna help others through their grief, through your grief. Welcome to the club that I wish you didn't have to be a part of. I'm really looking forward to today's podcast. My guest is Linda, who is currently a nurse practitioner. She has 30 years experience as serving as a pediatric nurse and 25 years of flight nursing. Often aircrafts will have flight physicians that nurses assist in caring for patients, but in the event that there is no flight physician on board, a flight nurse takes charge. So I don't know about you, but when I see the Life Flight helicopter en route, I always get an uneasy feeling because I know it's not good news. Linda has seen some horrific accidents, but because she has treated many, she has some amazing stories to tell of hope and about life after this life. Let's get started. Linda will verify for us that death of the earthly form is a natural and totally safe part of your unending life that began before you came to earth and continues after your physical shell perishes. Thank you, Linda, for joining us. I met Linda last month and we were at a meeting and she said something. She told the story. In fact, she told a couple stories and I got these goosebumps. Immediately when she started talking, so I thought to myself, I have got to talk more to Linda. And Linda helps so many people in this grieving process. So, Linda, give us, myself and some listeners, a little bit more about your background. Thank you, Cheryl. It is truly a privilege to be here. I've been really looking forward to this. Um, I've been in emergency medicine for a very long time, really probably over 45 years now. I began my career working as a nurse in the emergency room at Children's Hospital. And one day, one afternoon, we had a very interesting child came in, come in. Um, he was about 12 years old, and he was um, having some dizziness and lightheadedness for a couple weeks, and nobody could really figure out why. He was riding his bike, bicycle one day, and uh, they actually had to call the squad because he got so lightheaded and, and pale. So we came into the emergency room. Um, he was alert. He was talking to us. He had normal vital signs. And the nurse that was assigned to him, her name was Susie. And what she noticed is that every time she would sit him up suddenly, he would get really dizzy and just say, I don't really don't feel right. So she made sure he was flat on his back. Well, in comes an intern. They had gotten some labs, and his labs were very abnormal and really incompatible with life, truly that abnormal. Um, and the intern sat him up really quickly, and he goes, man, I don't feel good, and then promptly fell over. I mean, he got gray. His heart stopped. He stopped breathing. Um, very aggressive resuscitation. There were lots of people in the room helping him. 
Um, and thankfully, he survived. Uh, the intensive care unit at that point was only one floor above the emergency room, and we would go up and see how he was doing. And as people would walk into the ICU, he knew every single person that came in there. And one gentleman came in and he said, Fred, thanks so much for what you did for me the other day. And Fred said, um, how did you know my name? And Because he was not wearing any ID badge. And he said, well, you were pushing on my chest and I was watching you from the corner of the room and I read your name on your name tag. Now, Fred was, Fred's an ex-Vietnam vet and nothing, and I do mean nothing, can rile him, you know. But as this little boy was talking, Fred is the one then who gets pale and has goosebumps everywhere. So he, the little guy, told us everything that happened in the room. He knew that we were using medications that we got out of um, the drawers. This is, I'm really dating myself because this is before the time of crash carts. We really didn't have many Mm. crash carts then. What year would that This was, I think this was 1977 or 78. Mm. So He went on to explain every single thing that happened in that room. He thanked the nurse who was helping him. She was at the head of the bed. Now, he was in full cardiac arrest. They were doing, Fred was doing compressions, and nobody could do compressions like Fred. He was the best. And we know today how important compressions are. So Fred was doing these compressions, and the nurse, Susie, was telling him, you know, we're putting in a tube to help you breathe, even though he was in cardiac arrest. Most nurses don't do that. And I was really touched by how compassionate she was. And doing that's just very unusual. Um, so she was talking to him. He knew everything. He knew that they put some pads or something on his chest and that his body jerked. He was trying to tell everybody that he was okay. He was watching them from the corner of the room, and he was completely at peace. Did he say if he felt pain at that time? No pain whatsoever. But we don't know what else happened because we never asked him about the other mm-hmm. elements that are associated with this out-of-body experience. But there was one other thing when he was in the intensive care unit that really made us all stand up and take notice. Uh, he overheard a conversation between two physicians about something that they had lost. I think it was a reflex hammer. Mm-hmm. And he said, excuse me, I don't mean to be eavesdropping, but in the room that I was in, in the emergency room, there is a lab coat behind the door. You put what you were looking for in the pocket of that lab coat. This boy is this saying. This little boy is saying. This to the doctor. Yes, to the doctor. He said, You're, you put that in the lab coat. Go downstairs to the emergency room. So they looked at him like he was crazy. Um, but they went down to the emergency room. And in the room that he was first in, behind the door, there was a lab coat. And in the pocket of that lab coat was that reflex hammer. So they were like, whoa. So we talked about this for a very long time in the emergency room. I can only imagine. You know, a lot. And I had just gotten through nursing school and, you know, I'm going through my all of my books. And believe me, there is nothing in there. There is no mention of people who have this this odd experience. And as we were talking, there was another nurse um, who had recently transferred from the oncology unit, which is kind of an unusual transfer to go from taking care of children with with cancer to to the ER. But she was telling us about um, a child, well, actually there were several children, but one in particular who was maybe six or seven years old and she was dying from some form of, of cancer. And a couple days or weeks before she died, she started talking about her best friend. She kept saying, talking about this little girl named Nancy, and she would describe what she looked like and what she was wearing and kind of mannerisms. And this nurse recognized her this, this little girl, best friend Nancy, as a child who had died on that unit decades before, a you long time before. Got to be kidding. No, so we talked about this 
like a lot. Mm, a lot. I mean, we were really, really can, intrigued with this. How can you not talk about that? So at some point, you know, the rest of the year probably, you know, died down. But I was totally intrigued. I was totally intrigued. So I later on, I was I had um, positions where I was involved with um, education of nurses and paramedics and helping them feel a little bit more comfortable with children. So in my quest to work on some different educational programs, I decided to do a class on near-death experiences. And I started out with this little boy's experience. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of other things that happen with that. I mean, it's not just an out-of-body experience. It's several other elements which we can cover, you know, quickly in, in just a minute. With just the we, little boy's yeah. incident. Well, we didn't know. We didn't know. You, we didn't didn't know what you, you didn't know what you didn't know. Right, exactly. But it's what I learned over that time is that's an experience that completely changes somebody's life. Mm-hmm. It is the most profound event of their life. They are never again the same. I mean, there's they're, they go into different careers. They have problems with marriage mm-hmm. or, or maybe get stronger. They change. They may change religion. There's a lot of changes in their life. And we didn't know all that. So as mm-hmm. I was learning about that, I felt it was very important for medical professionals mm-hmm. to understand what some of those things were. We have classes today um, we have advanced life support, cardiac life support. We have pediatric advanced life support. We have all these programs, but nobody ever talks about what happens when that person comes back. If they had that experience, their life is turned inside out. And we, we need to. It's taboo. Yeah, it, absolutely. Especially still, when still physicians is. go through all that training in medical school. They're taught nothing about that. It, right. it doesn't follow the science. No, it doesn't. And my son, right? my son is just graduating from medical school, and he's like, he looks at me. But I, you know, we, I, you have to have these, you have to have these conversations with people because this is part of medicine. I sort, I see it as there are a lot of things that are, you know, are qualified. Quali- I, well, I guess that's not the best word. Quantitative? Quanti- yeah, yeah. you can't measure them. Mm-hmm. You can't measure them. I mean, science is based on, you know, giving somebody a dose of this and seeing what kind of reactions are. Mm-hmm. This is different. This mm-hmm. is qualitative, I guess. So when somebody says, I'm in pain, I'm depressed, I'm suicidal, um, we stand up and take notice of that. But when somebody has an experience like this, we don't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have any background in it. And I think it's really important to listen to them mm-hmm. because sometimes just very simple measures will kind of help this person, you know, along that journey to understanding and yeah. making their life a little bit well, better. Well, there's no algorithm that has been. It's a good way. Yeah. But I think this is what they call new age, but it's mm-hmm. really becoming enlightening now. Right. And Absolutely. people are listening. And I think it's because of. Uh, Excuse me, social media, right? right? right. Um, there's more ways to talk, Absolutely. broadcast, internet, and people are open. And I think people are also receiving messages from their loved ones right. after death. And uh, it's a new awakening for sure. And based on what you were saying, so I, I started out with classes on um, near-death experiences, and hands would go up about the, uh, the associated mm-hmm. experience, the different ones, the related experiences. And I realized there's really a lot to talk about. So I now have divided it into a class on near-death experiences, a class on after-death communications, where somebody has a sense of somebody's presence, that, and it's undeniable. There's no question. They have a scent. They see them. They hear them. There's something that is very... Um, Distinctive. Absolutely, Mm -hmm. about this event. And then another one is nearing death awareness, and that's where a lot of times it involves hospice patients who are dying, and they seem to be going through a transition between two worlds. Um, But there are also patients that I've taken care of that 
have been injured, but they're talking to us, they have a pulse, they seem alert, they're oriented, that will look up at you and say, I'm dying. And in every single case, they have died. And I have talked to probably 15,000 medical professionals around the country, and I always ask them that. Have, have you ever, has anybody ever said that to you? I'm dying. And what was the, what happened? I've never had somebody say, yeah, they lived. Never. never. Not one single time. So that's sort of a premonition of death. So I think this is important for us to be able to look at all these different aspects and recognize them. And even if we don't believe it, I understand if somebody doesn't believe it, but even if we don't believe it, to recognize that it's real for them and to help them through their, mm-hmm. that process. Have you ever had the opportunity to follow anyone after they've experienced a near-death experience? I've had several, pa- I've had several patients who've had an NDE um, and I, yes, I have followed them for, for a period of time. I had one child who uh, was, and this he was interesting, he was, uh, I think, 14 or 15, and he was in the Hilliard area, and he was... Um, Hilliard, Ohio. Hilliard, Ohio, okay. right. And you worked at... I worked at Children's. Children's Hospital in... In Columbus. In Columbus, I, Ohio. And I also was in, in Cleveland for a while, too. Um, but he was shot um, in the head. This at, child yeah, was. At close range. And... Um, he had multiple hospitalizations, and during his last hospitalization, uh, they had to take him suddenly back to the OR because he had a gigantic bleed in his brain. I think it was a sign mm-hmm. of a baseball. Mm-hmm. So it was very, very large. During that experience, um, he met people that had died that were not known to be dead by others. There was another child there that um, he said he was skipping rocks with, you know, he was talking to, he he felt that he met Jesus, he was given information, he was told this isn't your time. Was he in a coma at that time? Yeah, a or little, yes. was sedated or what was? Well, what it was, was his he, he, this stance? actually This actually happened when he was in the operating room. Mm. The, the, the so he was under anesthesia. He was under anesthesia. And that's when he experienced mm-hmm. talking to all these yes. skipping and, rocks. And, and he was unresponsive for a period of time, but then he woke up and he told his mom about this and he kept talking about this one little boy that he was playing with and his he said his name and there were a couple other people in the room and they were like you know I, I I don't recognize that name who is this and then one person had a picture with several kids in it and they said to him Josh do you see that person in this picture and he said yeah he's right over here mm. well that person that child had died um like six months earlier goosebumps mm-hmm but he was such a cool kid. I mean, when you and he lived, he lived, he lived. and he had he was paralyzed on his left side. Mm. Um, but he had such a wonderful, wonderful aura around mm. him. He was so positive. I mean, you could see where somebody would feel really sorry for themselves after something like this. He just lived every single day with you know in the moment, you know. Mm. And he he said, "I'm I'm here to help to help people. I'm just here to help people." Uh, he was just a wonderful, wonderful um, individual, and so was his mom. And that's what I hear. People mm-hmm. who have experienced oh. these NDEs, uh, th- they live in the moment. They do. They right? absolutely. And they're not afraid of dying. No. This completely takes away their fear of death, completely 100%. They are not afraid of dying. They would not do anything to, um, you know, promote their death. I mean, they, they feel mm-hmm. like their death is a, is a gift. Uh, and I mean, their life, I'm sorry, their, their life, life is, is a gift, gift and, and they're, they're yeah, here they for a purpose, right? right? Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, so it's, it, it is interesting to talk to them about that, too. And this is actually, there, there, have, has been, there have been studies about um, people who are su- suicidal, mm-hmm. who actually 
um, have a suicide attempt Mm -hmm. and they have a near-death experience during that suicide attempt and it's wonderful i mean they they feel a a, you know um a belonging they feel a sense of peace they Mm -hmm. feel a sense of joy and you would think oh my gosh it's going to make them more suicidal because they want to get there Mm -hmm. but they don't they Mm -hmm. they will come back and they will um you know they'll understand that they're here for a reason and they will work through whatever those issues Mm -hmm. were um, so it's it, it's opposite of what you would expect. You would expect them to actually be more suicidal. Now, some sometimes children's may children may be more suicidal because they don't understand it. Mm-hmm. And if they have a parent that says, or family mm-hmm. members that say, "Oh, please, you really you shouldn't be talking about this." Or, mm-hmm. um, in how much do you get that where people are very 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 religious and they won't step out of that box? Right, right. It's yeah, it's not socially accepted. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So. If that happens to a child, they can actually have some really negative consequences because they realize that they're different from other kids. You know, they think other kids have had the same experiences mm-hmm. that they have and they haven't. So they're they're a little bit different. Uh, there's a lot that we need to be doing in terms of research on this, and we're not doing it. I mean, there's very few few in people that have field, been, yeah, in the, the medical, medical field. field they're not, mm-hmm, doing it. not very much. Mm-hmm. Because as you know and I know, we have both sought out answers for ourselves, and there's a lot out there. Right. But they aren't teaching it at universities. Right. It's very rare to have that. Mm-hmm. Now, with hospice, um, there is more information. I think hospice nurses and physicians are, are wonderful at explaining this person may be reaching out to things. They may mm-hmm. be having conversations with people that aren't apparent to others. And they are very good at explaining that to families. And oftentimes when that happens to the fam- with the families, that's something that's really comforting for them. Like, you know, to, like lucidity. Yes. Right? Yes. They, they, will have a, they may have a brief period where they have great conversations with the families and the families will think, oh. They're, they're good again. Yeah, they're right? good. And we can bring them home. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And that's not But then within a right. day or two, two weeks maximum, right. Right. they lose them. Right. That's exactly. But they will remember that conversation and right. say that was a gift. And like, all of yeah, these yeah. are a gift. Mm-hmm. I call all of these experiences moments of grace because mm-hmm. grace is an unwarranted gift from God. And that's what this feels like to mm-hmm. me. There's just there's something really special mm-hmm. and inspiring about talking about this. So who do you talk to? I, I mean, who do you talk? I have a variety. Because <laughs> you talk a lot, right, to people. <laughs> but I, who do you talk to? I don't stop. And how do, how do people find you? Well, um, that that's a good question. Um, I a lot of it is word of mouth right now. Um, I've I've talked for a lot of medical medical groups. I do some classes for um, different universities. I've done OSU. I've done OU. Um, I've talked at conferences before, and a lot of it is just word of mouth. There's a program up in Delaware, Ohio, called SourcePoint, and it's for um, 55 and over. And I've done several sessions for them. So it's just more word of mouth. But I would love to do this more often because it it isn't me. It's the topic and it's the response of the audience and of the participants because they always have stories that they share. Mm-hmm. And they're always fascinating. Mm-hmm. You know, how did this happen? And you're helping people. Oh, I hope right? so. I hope so. They're helping me. I mean, I hope so. Right. It's, it's a, a really, two-way street. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Prior to us starting, you were talking to me about some after-death communication. Can you tell us a little bit more about yes, that? Yes. This is a fascinating subject. This is where... Uh, people have a sense of someone's presence that they've lost. And it's not um, just, oh, yes, I feel them all the time, which is wonderful. That's a nice feeling. But this is, 
I saw them, you know, I heard them, um, or there was something symbolic involved. Um, and this is probably the comment that I get more than anything when I'm doing doing classes. Uh, a couple years ago, I was in Florida and I was doing a class for a senior group, and um, I was I, there were a couple people in the group that actually had a near death experience. And I was talking before that class with a woman who I'd never met before. And, you know, when you have conversations with people, you kind of start out with very general questions like, you know, where do you live? How many kids do you have? And I remember asking her how many children she has. And she said, uh, she actually paused and she said, two, I have two children. And then we talked about a little bit about the near-death experience class we were doing. And she said, you know, you asked me how many children I had and I told you two. She said, I really have three. She said, my son, um, Zach, um, had cystic fibrosis, and he died when he was 20. And that's a really awful mm. disease. At one point, he said to her, Mom, how much can God make somebody suffer? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. to imagine. I mean, they can't so breathe and they can't eat. I mean, it was really hard. Mm. He graduated from uh, high school, and then he spent his time living with her and living with his her sister, which is his aunt. So divided his time equally among the two. Um, had a really difficult course. Uh, and he died again when he was 20. So she was really grieving. And a couple months after she, um, after he died, she was in her room and she was, you know, trying to go to sleep, wasn't, was kind of in that twilight, you know, lucidity. Yeah, yeah, sort of like, and she had a sense that somebody was watching her. And she looked up and at the foot of her bed was Zach. Hmm. And she said he was just composed of light. I mean, he looked like him, he looked healthy. Um, and he said to her, mom, I love you. Mm. Um, I'm okay. You can stop, you know, you can stop worrying about me. I love you. And he sort of dissolved. And she thought, Mm. wow, that's really weird. And she went to bed the next morning. First thing in the morning, she's not even out of bed. She gets a phone call and it's from her sister. And she goes, you will never believe what happened to me last night. I am in bed. I'm not quite asleep. I look up and at the foot of the bed, there's Zach. Same and thing. he said, you got to tell my mom to stop worrying about me. I'm okay. I'm fine. I love you. Mm-hmm. I love her. Tell her I love her. Mm-hmm. And then just dissolved again. They had exactly the same dream. vision. Or vision. Exactly the same one. It wasn't a dream. It was a vision because they were both awake at the time. Right. Exactly. And they were not hallucinating. Mm-hmm. And as a medical professional, if somebody came to you know, tell me that, I mean, why would I say, oh, you're having grief-induced hallucinations. You need to get psychiatric help. Maybe you need medications. This is something that really helped them. Okay. Something else to add to your story. Me, right? After my child died, I thought I had schizophrenia because the next morning after he passed, I'm in my room. I'm laying in the bed. I'm fully awake. Fully awake. I don't know how I can get out of bed. And in my left ear, I hear... Mom, I'm like, what the? That scared me because I thought to myself, he's crying out for me. He's scared. He might be in a place that I don't want him to be, right? And this is after he passed. So the next day, I'm driving in my car, tears rolling down my eyes, saying out loud, who is God? Where is heaven? Who is God? Where is heaven? Crying, crying, crying. In my left ear, after I say, who is God? I hear him say, everything. 
And then, where is heaven? Everywhere. Wow. Wow. Just like he was. Right there. Right there. And what do you do? I mean, you think you're going nuts, Mm -hmm. right? It's a gift. But when he speaks, he doesn't speak in sentences. Mm -hmm. He just speaks in syllable, one syllable word. So I've never really heard a full sentence. Mm -hmm. But yeah, some people don't hear. They might see them. I mean, it's all different. Yeah. It's different I've never for everybody. Done the same right. thing. That's rare. Yeah, but that's rare. I know. So I've added to a story. That's you can awesome. Tell, right? I mean, that's. I just think it's such a gift. You know, I do, And I guess I want to also make it clear that it doesn't take away grief. You know, people still go through this grief process, but it offers a dimension of comfort that we don't get through our traditional means. It. You know, you don't get through by taking drugs. You don't always get this through support groups Mm -hmm. or through counseling. So it offers a different type of hope and comfort. And I think that's what's really powerful. And we need to encourage that. It does, because you want to know that your child isn't six feet under. They're not. Or they're not, you know, they didn't go to the fire. Right. You know, it's a horrible thing and Mm -hmm. a horrible thought, but that's reality, right? So it is very comforting when you do get those messages. But now I have a word for it. Instead of schizophrenia, it's after-death communication. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I'm glad we could normalize that. So, Linda, when people have near-death experiences, do you ever get to talk to them about what they experience? I mean, are there certain elements that they all have in common? Yes, that's an excellent question because, and this is this is actually what is studied in the in the literature. There's even a, a score. It's called the uh, Grace and Near Death Experience Score, and that's what the research is based on. So people will have a, sen- a profound sense of peace and joy. And I'm telling you, when you bring them back from this, they are not happy. We've had people that come up, you know, <laughs> elderly women and elderly men that are like punching you. Like, how dare you take me away from this this beautiful place? So there's a sense of peace and joy. There's uh, the out-of-body experience that we looked at. Um, some people will go through a tunnel, um, and they will describe it as sometimes even a little uncomfortable. There's They're going moving through this tunnel at a very rapid rate of speed, but they're being drawn to, to a bright light. Children never go through this by themselves. They're always accompanied by somebody that they will call their guardian angel. Sometimes they have wings, sometimes they don't, but there's always somebody there. Uh, then they will meet others. Um, very common. I, I, I work with a child at Children's Hospital who was, I, again, I think he was 12 or 13, and he was hit by a school bus um, out in the Pickerington area. Um, had a lot of severe severe injuries. And he had a torn aorta, which was the main vessel going from your heart. And that's really pretty much lethal. But they were able to diagnose it very quickly at Children's. He went to surgery. He never had a cardiac arrest. But during his experience, he saw his dad. He met his dad. His dad died when he was like 18 months months of age. Um, And he had a great, great conversation with his dad. Wonderful conversation. Um, thankfully, the nurses were very supportive of it. The physicians weren't quite as supportive. They thought he was having just uh, a reaction to morphine. But the nurses encouraged him to talk about it, and he was able to work through that. Um, then sometimes they'll see a boundary or a border. And I spoke to one mom, um, and she was telling me that her uh, daughter was 16, and her daughter was killed instantly when she was in a crash with a boyfriend. Um, the boyfriend uh, obviously survived. He was in the intensive care unit. And when he got better, he told his family and his friends, he did not tell her this directly, that he remembers exactly what happened 
after that crash. They both went through a tunnel, and they emerged in an absolutely gorgeous valley. There were music and flowers. And this girl said to him, you can't come with me. This isn't your time. You need to go back. So that was his girlfriend? It was his girlfriend. And she just dissolved in this absolutely beautiful scenery. It was kind of like Field of Dreams, if you've ever watched that movie where Mm -hmm. they dissolve Mm -hmm. in there. And she just dissolved into that. And this mom said, you know, she said, um, she goes, I I still miss her desperately, um, but I know that she's in a better place and that I will see her again. So it really offered Mm -hmm. a sense of comfort. Again, doesn't take away grief, but it offered a sense of comfort that she wouldn't have gotten. And I thought how sad that we are living in an age where we don't encourage those conversations mm-hmm. because it would have been really nice for the boyfriend to tell her that directly. And he didn't obviously didn't feel comfortable doing that. So what I love about this topic is it really does encourage conversations. And that's what we're trying to get from the podcast. Right. You know, just get it out there. Maybe you have a friend that has, right. you know, lost a loved one and they're still in that grief zone. And this is just another avenue for them to listen. Absolutely. Just listen. You don't have to believe. The more you listen, though, the more enlightened you become. Absolutely. 100% agree. Thank you, Linda. Thank you. I I appreciate your time. I know if you are going to help so many people out there and that God is using you as a vehicle and your positive energy to help so, so many people. So well, I, I hope so. Thank, thank you. you. It has helped me just as much. So a little selfish in saying that. It's been an amazing journey, truly. And we appreciate thank you. you. Wow. I don't even know what to say. We're going to have Linda on again. I mean, I just could listen to her forever and ever and hear her stories. But she had an appointment after this. So we had to get her out of the studio. You know, and she's science-based. She practices evidence-based medicine she can't make this stuff up. I mean, she's got stories of little children experiencing the afterlife. And you just can't get enough of that because you know it's real, it's true, it's enlightening, and it gives you goosebumps. So I just can't wait to talk to her again. Thank you for listening. And until next time. 